She was 17 years old. He stood glaring at her, his weapon before her face. Do you believe in God? She paused. It was a life or death question. Yes, she said, I believe in God. Why, asked her executioner, but he never gave her the chance to respond. The teenage girl lay dead at his feet. This scene could have happened in the Roman Colosseum. It could have happened in the Middle Ages. It could have happened in any number of countries around the world today. People are being, at this present time, imprisoned, tortured, and killed every day because they refuse to deny the name of Jesus. This particular story, though, did not happen in ancient times, nor in Vietnam, Pakistan, or Romania. It happened at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado on April 20th, 1999. Over the past several weeks, we've been looking at the reality that if you choose to follow Jesus Christ and do what He asks you to do, you will face opposition from Satan and from the world system. Sometimes it will be subtle. We've seen that. Sometimes, in other words, it will be, to, to use a phrase, go along to get along. And if you give in, you will absorb error into how you follow Christ. Sometimes it will be openly hostile. Now, let me just give you a heads up. If you're here today and you have found that the way that I've started is rather heavy and I'm talking to believers in Jesus Christ and you happen to be here today and you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, don't think you can get out of this opposition so easily. Let me share something with you. If you're not a follower of Christ, you already are His possession. You are held captive by Him, the Bible says, to do His will. But once you come to faith in Christ, by the way, I'm speaking to those of you who are mature and those of you who are young, once you come to faith in Christ and you begin to set out at the task that He has given you, that task of, of growing I'll use this big word, sanctification, the, the, the work of building the temple, as it were, the, the work of building your life around Christ, being engaged in the church. It's almost as if you have a target painted on your back. And that's why Peter warns us, wake up, shake out the lethargy, be on your watch, because your adversary, the devil, 
is always prowling around like a roaring lion seeking, seeking someone to devour. And that's why, too, we have to, Paul says, take up the shield of faith. Why? Because the flaming arrows are going to be constantly coming at you. And the only way to extinguish those is with the shield of faith. Now, we spent three sermons in chapter 4 talking about the subtle opposition, talking about the open hostility. And here we are in the next chapter, chapter 5, because something happened at the end of chapter 4. We saw the reality of this opposition. And if you'll remember, remember with me that it hadn't even come to, to the reality of them coming after them physically. It was just in word, words of opposition and the people of God, the covenant people of God, stopped the work. And so here we are. It, by the way, in my Bible, chapter 4 ends at the bottom of one page, and I flip the page, and all of a sudden you realize that between the last verse of chapter 4 and the first verse of chapter 5, 15 years have gone by. What had happened? Judah had been opposed. They had established worship. They were building the temple. Opposition came as it always does. Listen, folks, they just stopped. The indication is that for 15 years, now watch this, they stopped worshiping and they stopped building. Now, here's the question growing out of that statement I just made and then growing out of the earlier illustration from right now, at least several years ago, what will you do? Another question, and obviously it's the purpose of this message today, how will you prepare for that opposition when it comes? Some of you may be in it right now. But trust me, it is coming. So the question is, how will you prepare for it? And, and maybe, maybe even more importantly than that, the question becomes, how will you help your children and your grandchildren prepare for the inevitable opposition that will come if they choose to follow Christ? Now, one of the things you can look at is this, and I, I would encourage you to write this verse down, write it on the, the, the tablet of your heart. Really, I, I think you need to know this, that with all of the things, the negative things happening around us, with all of the, 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 the naysayers and all of the rest of that, you need to understand that we really do serve a sovereign God who has promised to finish what He has started in us. And so we can be confident with the Apostle Paul. You can, I can, no matter where you are, that the good work that God began in you, that work of salvation and then sanctification, growing, building your own personal temple, building the, the temple which is the church of God, He will bring it to maturity. He will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. But you and I have a part to play. So in chapters 5 and 6, and I know this sounds weird to you, it's not what I normally do, I'm going to preach two chapters plus 
the books of Haggai and Zechariah today, and we're still going to do the Lord's Supper. All right? Impossible task. But as I looked at this, th this is all one sweeping story that, that God is so faithful, and he sends these two guys to come and tell Judah to get off their spiritual backsides and get back to work. I mean, it's just as simple as that. And I really encourage you, not now, but, but later on, please read the books of Haggai and Zechariah and how they fit into it. And, and God was so faithful. And from this, from what happened, as they start to rebuild, and then you're going to have to read chapters 5 and 6 for yourself. I'm just going to read a couple of verses from those things. They are, again, opposed. It's a little bit milder this time. The, the, the opponents are just simply writing a letter to the king to see if they really had permission there is some intimidation in there, but in the end, they end up doing, completing the task. And so what I want to give you, you see it there in your outline, five things for how do you right now, today, prepare to complete the task that God has given you to do. What is that task? Worship and build your temple. Grow in sanctification in the face of opposition. So, by the way, these are not uh, rocket science. These are things that you and I ought to be doing every day, and, and that's why we look at these and put special emphasis on them. Let's look first of all at Ezra chapter one, uh, chapter five, verses one through three. Let me read this. I, I just find this passage of Scripture fascinating, the faithfulness of God, the faithfulness of these two preachers. They were different. I wonder if Judah had a preference. I've always wondered that. You know, it seems like Christians always do. Well, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. Really, God wanted to speak through both of these guys, and we'll discover some reasons why. Look at this, verse 1. Now, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied. Now, they were, they were giving forth new revelation. We don't have new revelation today because we don't need it. Everything we need is in the book. And so, our prophesying today, what I'm doing is prophesying in a sense, but it's forth-telling, not foretelling. This was brand new stuff. This was straight from the Word of God, and guess what? So is this, as long as I'm faithful, to share with you what this book says this morning. They prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. I like that. God was over them. Philippians 1.6, then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting and encouraging them. First thing, we're going to see this as we move into the books of Zechariah chapter 1, Zechariah chapter 1. The first thing, I'm talking to Christians now, obviously we begin the Christian life with the repentance and faith, but here's the first thing that you and I need to do. Always to prepare for anything that's coming. Look at it right there, first point. Maintain a continual posture of repentance and deal quickly with personal sin. Be willing, Christian, to stand against 
your sin. I've been a Christian for a long time. Let me say it another way. A follower of Christ, not just a, an official kind of title, Christian, but a person who has sincerely sought to follow Christ every day. I, that, that's been my life for a long time. And I am here to tell you that I have sinned since before I knew Christ and since I've come to faith in Christ often sometimes more badly than I would like to admit to you. But thank God that Ezra chapter 5, verse 1, after 15 years of languishing, it shows one of the greatest truths of all of Scripture that you can start again, Christian. Even if you've been languishing for 15 years, in disobedience, you can start again. What an incredible, incredible truth. See, here's the deal about sin and why we, we've just said be willing to stand against your sin. Do it continually. Do it directly. Do it immediately because sin kills. Now, we think of this verse as just a pre-Christian verse, don't we? It's what we use in our gospel presentation. The wages of sin is death. That's true before you were a Christian. That statement is true after you become a Christian. Your sin, even forgiven sin, and we know that it's all been forgiven, but your sin will impact those around you. It, it will impact the person who is sitting next to you. Christian. It'll impact your kids. It'll impact your larger family, the family of God. This is true for everyone. Sin kills and damages those around you. So, what's the remedy? The first point, admit your sin and do what? And, and repent. That means stop it and, and kill it. Admit you're a sinner and repent. Now, this is kind of interesting. I find it interesting. Why two prophets? Why two prophets? They were different. If you read their books, they're going to be a, a little bit different emphasis. By the way, it's, it, it's also an interesting fact that Zerubbabel, excuse me, that, that Haggai was sent to Zerubbabel and Jeshua and by extension, the rest of the Jews. But he was sent to the leaders. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but the leaders had stopped working too. And, and, and the leaders need to be jump-started. And so Haggai is sent, and then several months later, Zechariah is sent. But there, I, I think there's another reason you, you look at these two verses and write them down, okay? Go back and look at the context. Whenever God warns, whenever He comes to His people and says, I need you to really listen to me because there's a warning attached 
to what I'm about to say. There is judgment around the corner if you don't do what is needed. He always confirms it out of the mouth of two or three witnesses. In fact, in church discipline, that's the way it is in Matthew 18, in verse 16. He he says this in Deuteronomy, on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Not just one. You don't die on that, but you do two or three witnesses. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians, this is the third time I'm coming to you. It it wasn't two or three Pauls or two or three other people, but he he goes back and quotes this verse to say that, that you need to listen because there is judgment around the corner. The message is repent. I want you to look at the uh, the James Montgomery Boyce um, quote that I wrote, first of all, because I I think it is just so important. And he nails it. He nails it for for many of our people today. I I believe this has always been a problem. But but I think if you will look uh, out and and see the, the, the preaching that is out there today, There is a lack of a teaching and preaching on repentance. And he says wisely, we often hear the Savior characteristics of God's stress, His love, mercy, goodness, and so on. But the matter of His Lordship is absent. The distortion is particularly clear in evangelism. In modern practice, the call to repentance is usually called an invitation, which one can obviously accept or refuse It is offered politely. Seldom do we hear presented God's sovereign demand to repent or his demand for total submission to the authority of his appointed king, Christ Jesus. The Jews knew this. This may sound really works-oriented, This is the message of the Old Testament. Follow God and be blessed. That doesn't mean without opposition, but there's always the corresponding blessing that goes with obedience to God. Or reject God, refuse to follow Him, and be cursed. I quoted out of Deuteronomy. Just go to Deuteronomy 28 and read the blessings and and the cursings. And so I I just wondered, uh, to bring this up to to today's date, I'm not saying really anything about anyone today, but I I just wonder what Haggai and Zechariah would have named their tour There are a lot of Christian ministries out there. And I just wonder if they had had a tour, what they would have named it. I wrote it down. Straight out of Haggai and Zechariah, it would have been called the consider your evil ways and repent and get back to doing what I saved you to do tour. Without apology... I have to take responsibility for myself and my own sins. 
That lady right there can't do it. She can encourage me. I, you have to take responsibility for your own sins. And some of those may be secret sins. But what I am begging you to do is what Haggai and Zechariah would also beg you to do. As Boyce said, they wouldn't invite you to do it. They would say it's a demand. If you have been sinning, and you know it because the Holy Spirit has shown you, when should you repent? I just just don't see any way around it. Not when we give the invitation, or we take the Lord's Supper, or we leave through that door. I'll wait till later. That was an excuse that these guys used in the second point. You're going to see that in a minute. It's just not time. If, if there is a small sin, even a small sin, by, by the way, is there anything such as a small sin? What is the wage of sin always? Even small sins? So if you're sinning against God, when is the time to repent? It's now. You want the blessings of God or the curses of God? By the way, everyone works. Everyone works. Everyone around you works. And they were working. You got to see this. For 15 years, they had been working. Just not what God had told them to do. I want you to turn. It's not on a slide because I wanted us to read this together. Matthew chapter 7. And if you look at what comes in front of it and behind it, you're going to see there's a lot of thing about looking for evidence. That's your, that's your own responsibility. Others may do some fruit checking too. We're told to do that in the church. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. Behind it is an encouragement to build your house on the rock. So here's what Jesus said. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, because some have been in preaching and services like this, and they've said, I'll wait to repent, I'll wait, and then the end comes. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name, many of them, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Please don't stop repenting. I've been struck this last week and the way that it's hit me, I just want to share this with you because it, it, it always hits me. But uh, the tragic story of the young lady, Gabby Petito, I believe her name is. It's, it's all over the news and it's tragic and they have found her remains and the, the, the funeral is prepared. 
I haven't listened or read, listened to or read all of the stories about her, but I think I'm safe in saying that they've talked a lot about her, but they have never talked about the most important thing. Did she ever repent of her sins? If you and I as evangelicals believe in the realities of heaven and hell, I, it's, it's almost, isn't it hard to go there? But that's reality. We, we get one chance at this, and then once we die, let me remind you, there is no repenting in hell. And that's why when I ask you the question, when is the time to repent? It's now. Second point. Okay, you've got the repentance down. Everybody's repented up, right? Second thing that Haggai and Zechariah, particularly Haggai, and I want you to, if you can find it, you may have to do some looking or look at, I'll give you a chance, turn to Haggai chapter 1. You kind of have to maybe search for it. It's right after Zephaniah and right before Zechariah, which is right before Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. Okay, so you can find it. Here's the second point. This could be a bigger thing than even the repenting. No, it's not a bigger thing than repenting, but it's equally as important. Reprioritize. Reprioritize daily. There is not a person in this room who has all of his or her priorities straight. And this is so obvious from the Scripture. Get rid of the things that drag you down into sin. It's not written here, but I put down after this, be willing, just like be willing to stand against your sin, be willing to stand against the idols of your heart. Haggai 1, I, I, it says 5 and 6 on your notes. I'm going to back up to um, 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. It, this is interesting. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Is there anything wrong with building a house, having a house? Nope, not at all. But there's a problem here while this house reminds, re, uh, lies in ruins. Now remember, this is the Old Testament talking about a literal temple. That, but what we're talking about overlaying on the Christian life. Is it right for you to prioritize something else while your own temple is going unattended? Verse 5, now, therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways. You have sown much. Watch this. You have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. Does that sound like some of your experiences or the experience of some of your friends? You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Even if you're repented up, I, I don't know that you can do one without the other. Really, really, I can't. You will not grow in your Christian life if your priorities are wrong. 
And Paul tells us what the right priorities are. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. If you are a believer, which means you've been raised up and seated, Paul says in, in Ephesians, in the heavenly places in Christ. If you've been raised up with Christ, and this is in the present, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. He's not saying to neglect the things on earth. Just don't make them the first priority. The problem with these people, Haggai points out, and this could be true of you and me too, they have stopped, listen, they have stopped caring about and prioritizing the building of God's kingdom because they're focused on building their own kingdom. So the message is repent and deal with sin. The second thing is deal with priorities. Now, again, is, is we read through that. Are any of those things in and of themselves sinful? Are they? No. They're daily activities. The problem is when, listen, good things become idols and keep us from doing the best things. And if you listen carefully when I read verses 3 and 4, a paraphrase of that is this. You know what, God? I just don't have time for your business. I'm too busy doing my own stuff. Now, the Apostle Paul knew about prioritizing. I don't know if this feels like over the top for you, but this was his attitude. He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Uh, let me go back to this verse. Uh, well, I don't have that verse. Philippians 3. Let me, let me, let me just paraphrase it. He, he said, I have left behind the old things and I have made it my priority to pursue the things of God. He said something very important. All of those things that counted as something for me, I, I have just counted them as rubbish for the cause of following the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to Hebrews 12, 1. He says, lay aside the things that encumber. And, and I'm saying that right here, Haggai is reminding us that sometimes those things that can encumber us, weigh us down, draw us into sin, are absolutely good things that we've let become priority instead of the best things. And God's reminding them those things will leave you empty. That's why he says in Psalm 16, you made me know the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. So could I encourage you to not only repent, but keep checking your priorities? Don't allow good things that you do in your life, things that are, are things that you ought to do to become in subtle ways, idols to keep you from doing the main thing. Third point, Ezra. And I'm going to jump ahead to Ezra 7.10. Jump over there with me, Ezra 7.10. And he says something so vitally important. 
I love this. This could be the key verse of the entire book of Ezra. Ezra 7.10, so Ezra had set his heart to do three things, study the law of the Lord, study the word, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So the third point is just simply this. Once you've repented, once you've gotten your priorities straight, now, now, now listen to this very carefully. I don't think you've got your priorities straight if you're not having a consistent time with God in his word and in prayer. How are you going to know about your priorities? How are you going to measure that? How's the Holy Spirit going to, to encourage you to, to, to reprioritize when you're not in His Word consistently? And that's why I, I want to encourage you. I think we've got some at our visitors' center, the welcome desk. We've got the, the five-day Bible reading plan. And if you're not doing that, you can start right where it is with tomorrow's reading. It's a five-day plan, and you can read the Word of God. I'm not talking about mechanically, but, but so you can have a living encounter with the, the living and active Word of God empowered by the Holy Spirit that will yield growth. Here's what I'm, I, I'm absolutely convinced of, and I have to say this over and over again to myself because there are times when I feel like I think every preacher, every teacher goes through this. Probably every dad and mom. You preach and you preach and you preach and you preach and you wonder sometimes, does it make any difference? And if I'm giving you what I think, the answer is no. But if to the best of my ability, I'm giving you a lot of what God says, then I can bank on a promise like this. They just drop about half of the way down, and he gives an example in the first part, but he says this, my word that goes forth from out of my mouth, it shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now, I, I have to remember that this is true whether people accept or reject. God's word will either produce Conversion and transformation or hardness of heart and judgment. And either way, God will be glorified. But what I pray is that Sunday by Sunday, the preaching of the Word of God, no matter who is in the pulpit, you may prefer Haggai over Zechariah. You may like Zechariah better. He used a lot of illustrations. Okay? When you read it, you're going to understand it's, he was a longer preacher. But it doesn't matter as long as the Word is being declared to you. Spiritual warfare is ultimately against false ideas or worldviews that become fortresses that become tombs. And that's why we must take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Listen, we don't fight ultimately against flesh and blood. It, it's a worldview situation. We, we fight against ideas. Have you noticed what, se what seems to be in these days a, an increase, a proliferation of ideas that are opposed 
to biblical standards, to to moral biblical standards. So that's why we fight our battles with what God tells us is the only power to defeat those things. The powers of darkness. That's my only hope. I, I hope it's your only hope as well. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, okay, third and fourth grade Awana kids that are in my class, in our class, got about six adults working with those. It's a lot of fun. Sometimes it's like herding cats, okay? Well, I tell you, I, I am so impressed with how sharp they are at memorizing their scriptures. And so every week we, we do this. I ask them, what's the big idea? Kids, are, 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 there, are there any third and fourth graders here today? Okay, I'm going to ask you again. By the way, let me tell you what we've been talking about. We have been talking, and, and kids, I want you to really think with me what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. We have been talking about the communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. You say, what? Now, here's the way we've done that. Children, let the children answer. Can you be like God? First answer. Well, see, and I, they, they answer that. They're both right. Yes, you can be like God. Do you remember what we said? Because God is love. You can be loving. God is kind. You can be kind. God is merciful. You can be merciful. But then, can you be like God? No. In the incommunicable attributes. That just means what God is like. You can't be all-powerful, can you? You can't be... Now, what was the big idea from last week? I'm going to ask it. What's the big idea? God knows everything. And I told him that's a good thing. And that could be a bad thing. But we know, here's the way we ended that, because God is sovereign and he knows everything. He is omniscient. He knows everything. That gives me hope for whatever is in our future. God knows it, and he's preparing us for that. By the way, there are some people who say, well, I I see the Ezra 7.10, study, do, and teach, but pastor, I can't teach. You're teaching all the time. One of our ladies wrote a a post that somebody showed me a while back, and, and her comment was, every day, every Sunday when we get together for worship, you are teaching our children, parents, What is a priority? You're teaching them about worship and about listening to God's Word. Let's look at the third thing. Ezra 5.1. Well, you you can see if you go back and read that. We already read that. Meet together. Okay, you've repented. You've gotten your priorities right, I hope. You said, I'm going to have a quiet time because I need that to, to, to grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here's another one. Unless providentially hindered, meet together with 
and work alongside God's people for worship and encouragement. I know that there's a providential hindering in our day. I know that. But there are a lot of people who are not providentially hindered, and I'm just speaking a word of exhortation. I'll use the words of Haggai. Consider your ways, parents, grandparents. Because what if your kids or grandkids have the idea from watching you, you know, my parents or my grandparents are more concerned about, and then fill in the blank, than they are about being with God's people. So maybe it shouldn't be that important for me either. There's an old saying, I don't know who said it first. It's a good saying. What parents excuse in moderation, children run to in excess. You ever heard of Doubting Thomas? One of the apostles, one of, one of the apostles, the original. You ever heard of him? How did he get the word, the name Doubting? How did he get it? He wasn't at church when Jesus showed up. Now, it was a Sunday night church. Look at the scriptures. They were in the upper room. They were huddled together, and Jesus, boom, he shows up. By the way, just in a manner of speaking, that's what we pray happens every Sunday, that Jesus shows up. That's the most important thing through his word and through what we do, how we respond to that. And Thomas, for whatever reason, wasn't there. And so when he came, all the disciples said, man, we, we just, we had church. Jesus was there. Uh-uh. No, he wasn't. I'm not going to believe it. Well, he came to church next week. <laughs> and Jesus showed up again. And Jesus encouraged him. I, I think there is a power in just that simple illustration that it is important that we meet together and, and learn to do a lot of things, mutual encouragement. Let's look at the last one, and then we're going to move into, segue into our Lord's Supper, which is so important. Let opposition press you into God and His work. Let opposition not drive you away from God away from his church, but press you in to him and be obedient and faithful unto death. In other words, be willing to stay in the battle so that someday you will say, I fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Paul encourages you, fight the good fight of the faith. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. One more promise. In the whole thing, no matter what you face in the days ahead, God has made a promise about the future forces of evil. No weapon that is fashioned against you will succeed or prosper. And you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication 
is from me, declares the Lord. 